Well, we have been in Ephesians, and uh, we have been talking um, uh, for the last several weeks about uh, what does it mean to put on the new you. Ephesians chapter 4 um, says that, that we are to put on the, the new you created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so uh, we have said that uh, our identity, like who we are, is driven from who God is, that, that uh, because God is our Father, then we are his children, and we are loved as children, and we are family together. And because Jesus is king, we are servants. And because um, he is, is, is um, uh, kind of the, the, the giver of peace, we are worshipers, and the Spirit is our teacher, and so we are learners. And we, we've basically said the, the book of Ephesians tells us who we are, that we are a family of missionary servants called to worship God and to learn to walk in his ways. And so we've been talking about what does that look like? How does that look like in practice? How do we do these things together? And we, we have said that God is recreating us into this new you. And, and we have to understand who he is to understand who we are. Like when we talk about theology, people get nervous because they go, oh, oh, that sounds like very dry and dusty and whatever. But what we're saying is, it's just what we believe about God. And if we believe the truth about God, then, then we, we begin to, to see ourselves in light of that. And if we begin to believe lies about God, then, then that has its effect too. And so what we believe about God determines what we believe about who we are in Christ. And when we believe who we are in Christ rightly, then it impacts how it is that we live. And so all of these things, what we believe about him, what we believe about who we are in Christ, then that determines our activity. And, and so we have said that activity is not separated from those things, and we don't want to separate the, from those things. That's where uh, legalism and those kinds of things uh, work their way in. Um, when, uh, in 1995, if you can imagine this, um, I was a sixth grade teacher. And um, uh, they, I've had lots of different jobs over the years, but, but in 1995, I was a sixth grade teacher, and I had uh, a group of students that I loved. Um, one student uh, was smaller than everybody else. She was younger than everybody else. So she was 11, the rest of them were 12 and 13. Um, she was definitely brighter than all of the rest of them. She was super sharp. And so she always had her homework done before everybody else. She always had her classwork done. She was really bright. And, um, and whenever there was something that she didn't understand, she would just stay after school because she wanted to make sure that she never fell behind. And so one, one day I had gotten finished teaching how to divide fractions. And I might have gotten it mixed up at the beginning and had to reteach it all again. Um, so there was some misunderstanding about how to divide fractions because I was never very good at math. And, um, and so I, I got finished teaching how to divide fractions and then reteaching how to divide fractions the right way once I like reread the book, like, oh no, that's not right. Um, and, uh, and so she stayed after and she goes, I don't get it. And I was like, don't worry, I was having trouble myself about 10 minutes ago. Um, and so uh, she is working through and I could see her getting frustrated. And finally she just said, I'm never gonna get this. I'm stupid, I'm bad at math. And I thought, oh man, I have like ruined this poor child because she's super bright. And, um, and so I, I just said, Christine, nobody else is here. So I'm going to tell you something I would never tell you in front of the rest of the class. She's like, what's that? I was like, you are really smart. And I don't mean just, just kind of smart. I mean, crazy smart. Like um, I've seen your test scores and you're smarter than 98% of all the kids your age in the whole entire country. I was like, you are the kind of smart that ends up like, in the White House someday, you are, you are 
crazy smart. It's like all you have to do is like go back and look and, and, and say like, what does this say? What did I know about um, these last two lessons that led up to this? And then how do I apply it in this thing? And so I walked her through, she went back to her book, kind of a smile on her face, like I'm smart. And, and she figured it out and she got done. She's like, okay, I've got it. You know, thank you very much. In 2011, she sent me a, an email with a picture of her. She's like, hey, I want to introduce you to my boss. And she was um, part of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Um, and now she, is, uh, she heads up um, uh, the, the corporate relationships for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, and she turns 35 this year, which means she's finally old enough to be the president. Um, and, uh, and, and she's like heading on this trajectory. And all it took was somebody saying, you know what you could do? And, and she has like looked at that and said, I can do that. I'm going to do that. And she's been pursuing that. When we come into Ephesians, Ephesians, Paul has been going through and, and helping us understand what our beliefs should be because our beliefs lead to our activities. And so um, he has given us all of these things, these things that are true about us in the first two chapters and, and even into this third chapter of Ephesians that we're going to be in. And, and he is basically unpacking for us that... that um, uh, the, when, when we believe the right thing, we, it begins to shape how it is that we act. And I'm not going to go so far as like Napoleon Hill, who said, whatever your mind can conceive or believe you can achieve. Uh, but what I am going to say is that, that in the scripture, you do see um, people who believe wrongly and it has an impact and people who believe rightly and it has an impact. Um, Eve was convinced in the, in the very beginning. Um, the, the serpent came up to her and said, has God really said that you will really die? And she began to think, like, does God love me? Does God have my best interest at heart? Does God really want what's best for me? Is he withholding from me? Are there good things that God doesn't want me to experience? And so she began to believe a lie about who God was and, and what God's motivations were, and she chose to, to, to sin. And when she chose to sin, it impacted every one of us. All of humanity was impacted by that. You contrast that with Esther, right? Here's Esther. She's like in a, a country that's being oppressed by an outsider. Um, she sees that God is orchestrating things to put her into a, a place where she has influence. Um, and she believes that God is truly the covenant keeper, that when he introduced himself as Yahweh, the, the God who was and is and is to come, the one who always keeps his promises, she decided, you know what, I'm going to believe that. And she chose to see that the role that she was in was for such a time as this, right? For, for the time that, that she was going to be needed. And because she believed um, that, that God was working in her life and to position her in that place for him to keep his promises, her actions led to the salvation of her and whole entire race. What we believe about who God is determines what it is that we do. And if each of us examine uh, the, the pet sins that we have in our life, that is the thing that we look at and we go, man, for whatever reason, this one thing, I just can't seem to get a grip on. I, like this one thing, just it just always, it raises its ugly head. It just seems to, like, I just can't. That thing comes down to either a lie you're believing about God 
or a lie that you're believing about who you are in Christ. You are struggling with that thing because you don't think that God can take care of that, or you think that God is withholding something, or you think, like, God hasn't really changed me. I am not really a new creation. He is not making everything new. And, and so those lies that we believe determine what it is that we do. It's why when we have talked about Ephesians, we've said that, that Paul um, always kind of introduces us to the indicative. This is what's true of you. This is what's indicative of your life in Christ. This is what's indicative of life following after God. And then he goes into the imperative and says, because this is true of you, then this should be normal for you. This should be what life looks like. Everything that we're talking about is not about exceptional Christianity. Like we're not talking about being missionaries and servants and worshipers and go, and those are exceptional Christians. Everything we're talking about, this is just normal Christianity. And, and so he, he gives these indicatives about who we are before he gets to what it is we do. And he, in chapter one, we said that he describes us as family because God is our father. Um, second part of chapter one, that the spirit teaches us. And so we're learners. Last week, we looked at Jesus being our peace. And so we are alive together um, to be um, uh, those who worship him. And then today we're going to get to the first real imperative. It's going to be, and it's not even a, uh, a, a very uh, hard um, thou shalt kind of imperative, right? Um, and, and in fact, it's, it's softened even by how Paul introduces it. Um, typically, Paul, when he is um, uh, going through uh, and, and given instructions, um, his instructions uh, are, are kind of uh, didactic and, and, um, and we go through and, and he has kind of a, a deductive method. That is, he writes kind of like uh, newspaper authors write. If you read, I don't know, my kids have probably never seen a newspaper. I don't know, like in terms of like articles online on the LA Times. Um, uh, in the first sentence, um, it, it basically like kind of captures this is what we're going to talk about. And then everything after that so it just kind of flows through like, like here, here's the big topic and you can read the first paragraph or two and you don't really have to read the whole article. If you don't want to, you've gotten the whole point. That's how Paul writes most of the time. When, when he gets to chapter three of Ephesians, he does it exactly backwards. He's building towards something. And what he's building to is, is this first kind of instruction, this first command. And he says, I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to give in. I don't want you to, to, to fall in, in away and, 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 and give up on things. And particularly what he's talking about is giving up on... Um, uh, Oh. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> I wondered what all the ruckus was. That's uh, I was like, all right, well, we're celebrating something. Um, uh, so um, uh, he he's basically telling us not to give up on the mission of God and on God's ministry. Um, th there's a couple things that are happening here. Paul's writing to a group of people who um, they are understanding, and he's going to get into this in this passage, um, that, that, that the mission of God is, is that we take salvation to all the world. But salvation to all the world is not probably the way that we think of it in our American evangelical church. Typically, when we think about salvation going to all the world, we're thinking about like 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel that Jesus died and that he rose again and that he was seen by many and, and he ascended into heaven. And like we, we could go through that and just go, Jesus died in our place. His blood covers our sin. 
we are redeemed and made new, and all that is true. Um, but it's it's the beginning point of the gospel taking root in all of life. Um, what what he is going to talk about here is this mystery that, and he uses the the word mystery three times in Ephesians chapter three to talk about like what it is the gospel does. So the gospel, yes, it redeems us and it reconciles us to God, but the gospel is also redeeming us and reconciling us to each other. And so there's this man to God redemption, and there's this man to man redemption. And both of those things, he says, the mystery is that the gospel is joining together Jews and Gentiles. And for us, we, we go, okay, that's cool, like Jews and Gentiles. We don't think of it in the same way that these people would have thought about it. Like when, when the Jews thought about Gentiles and the Greeks particularly, they thought about people who came in and they took over their land. They, they talk about people who came in and were, were oppressing them. And, and the mystery is that God has taken these two races and he has, has joined them together in redeeming them to himself and in reconciling them to himself. He is reconciling them to each other. And so here's a group of people that they're like, all right, Paul's been talking about this gospel, this good news. And the good news is that we are reconciled to God and we're reconciled to each other. But the guy who's talking about this is in prison. And he, he is kind of our chief um, uh, champion for this idea. And he's now being oppressed by these people that we're supposed to be reconciling to. And so um, things are, are not looking super optimistic for these people. And so he says, hey, don't give up on this. Don't give up on this gospel and don't give up on this ministry of reconciliation to each other. Um, and so they are right on kind of the ragged edge. And um, a few years ago, Tanya and I had a couple come to us and they said, um, hey, we've, we've kind of, our marriage is blowing up because we have, have had uh, some affairs that have kind of rocked our marriage and, and we're thinking about calling it quits. And we gave them a book called Before the Last Resort. And, um, and it was the idea of like, the last resort is you just split up. And what do you do before the last resort to kind of figure it out? Paul, when he writes Ephesians chapter three, this is like before the last resort of giving up on the gospel and giving up on reconciling um, uh, racially with people who are, are far from God and need him uh, in the process of him reconciling them to God. And so um, uh, he begins to talk about redemption and restoration in our mission work. And, and part of the mission of God is that God will make everything that is wrong right again right? So part of what's wrong in the world is that mankind was cursed because of sin, but then mankind was cursed again at Babel. And, and people began to separate from each other because of their languages, because of the way that they spoke to each other. And he, he basically, when he talks about redemption, he talks about redeeming all things. And so he says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not revealed um, uh, which was, uh, I'm sorry, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he, he begins to unpack this by saying, hey, I don't want you to give up because we have been reconciled together to God. 
And, and as he, he unpacks this, he says, look, God's grace was given for the church in, in verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, for the church. Um, and, he, and he talks about the, this mystery that's made known. And the mystery that is made known is that, um, that he is reconciling us together. Now, when we read uh, the ESV, which is what I have on the screen and what's in front of me, uh, it says fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers. We kind of miss what it is he's saying. He uses three words that all start with, with uh, the Greek prefix syn, S-Y-N, um, like synthesis, bringing together, together with. And, and he, uses, he uses it three times basically to say, together we are heirs. Together we are members of the body. Together we are partakers of the promise. And, and he wants us to get in our mind this idea of togetherness, that we are being reconciled together. We're reconciled together as a family, as heirs. We're reconciled together as all part of the same body. Like, talk about identity. Like, when, when you go, um, you're a hand, and you're a foot, and you're a leg, and you're you, whatever. Like, we're all identified as part of the same thing. And then he says, we are together partakers in the promise of, of Christ. And the word picture is the idea of, like, two people owning a house together and receiving the income from that house. Like it's, it's, you, you are, are partners together. You are partakers together. And so he says, we have been reconciled together to God. It's, it's who we are. That's, that's, that's the nature of who we are. And then in verse seven, he begins to say that we are reconcilers together for God, that, that he has reconciled us together with him. And now we are reconcilers, like we are ministers of reconciliation to go out into the world for God. He says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power, the power of his spirit. To me, through the, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light to everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. It is your glory. So he basically begins to, to go through and he, and he says, look, we're reconcilers together for God. And so he, he unpacks it for us, that there's grace that's given by the Spirit, that there's grace that's given to preach. And it's to preach the riches of Christ and then to preach this reconciliation, this racial <laughs> reconciliation. Um, I, uh, several years ago, um, I was uh, at a, a conference in uh, Washington and a group of guys, uh, there was, I don't know, maybe six or eight of us, got to have dinner with, with a pastor um, named John Piper. And John Piper's written a bunch of books and um, he's got 30 plus years of ministry experience. And so a bunch of young guys sitting around with John Piper asking questions like, what do you do about this? And what do you do about that? And what kinds of things should we be preaching that we probably aren't? One of the things he said, which was amazing, was um, he said, I want each of you to consider praying about how you can use the month of February um, to preach um, a, uh, a biblical defense of interracial marriage. And some guys look around, they're like, what? And he's like, look, if the gospel doesn't impact us here, like if it doesn't, if it can't roll back the curse of Babel, it can't roll back the curse in Eden. 
Like we need to, to say the mystery is that we are really truly reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And 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 he he basically like went through and talked about how it is that that he builds into his preaching schedule this this defense of racial reconciliation as part of what the gospel does. And I think when Paul is going through here and he's talking about the gospel and he's talking about this mystery that, that, is, um, uh, that he has reconciled us together in the process of reconciling us to God, like it's, it's really something that we need to think about and we need to go, how, how does this happen? This week, a friend of mine, um, I'll see if I can uh, uh, pull up her post real quick, um, Asian American girl who uh, came was part of our church in LA. She says this. Um, here's the question. She posted this on Facebook. Here's the questions I'm trying to push myself into. Who doesn't have a seat at my table and why? How do I exchange the privilege I have so someone else can eat or be educated or get out of a detention center? How can I help other people experience the dignity of being human? Honestly, these questions make me deeply uncomfortable because at a certain point they require sacrifice and loss for me. Otherwise, otherwise it's just cheap and easy. If you're also trying to figure this out, let's grab coffee and talk. God willing, we will be wrestling with these questions our whole entire life, so we might as well do it in good company. And, and I, I read that and I was like, this is awesome. Like, I love the fact that, that, that people that I used to pastor are still walking in truth, that they're still pursuing. How does the gospel, what does it look like in real life? It's not just about me changing, it's about God reconciling all of us together. And so um, uh, he says that we are, reconciled to, to each other. And, and it's through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in, um, in verse 12 or verse 11, it says, this was according to the purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through this, our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart. He basically says in Christ Jesus, God's eternal plan is realized. In Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access. And in Christ Jesus, we have verse 12, glory. What does that mean? We have glory. In um, June of 2002, there were nine miners that got trapped in a mine in, in Western Pennsylvania. And one of the things that kind of captured the attention of, of the, the whole country as they watched as for 77 hours as they tried to get these nine miners out was that instead of like trying to get themselves out and begging people for help. When they realized that they were going to get stuck, they began to yell and warn people, don't come down, don't come down, you'll get stuck. And, and for 77 hours, there was like newsfeed of people watching what's happening with these nine miners that are, that are stuck in the mine. And, and when they finally came out, there was kind of this you know, celebration and, and, you know, this is amazing. We, the, the, they, people came together and whatever. But the, the stories that came out after they came out were what was really amazing. And newscasts after newscast after newscast kept using the same word. This is glorious. This celebration was glorious. Why? Because for 77 hours, they had one sandwich and one soda that they split nine ways. For 77 hours, they huddled together to keep their body heat so that they wouldn't go into hypothermia. For 77 hours, they would take turns on one little dry spot so that they could just get warm a little bit. For 77 hours, they were 
tied to each other to make sure that nobody drifted off when they went unconscious. They decided we're all going to live together or we're all going to die together. And so when they came out, people were like, this is the best of mankind in the worst of times. And they began to describe what these people did and the celebrations afterwards as glorious. And I think when we look at this and it says, this is for your glory, we don't lose heart. What I am suffering for you is for your glory. It is that we look at that and we go, this is God shining through us that in the hardest times, when we want to give up on his mission, when we want to give up on our identity as missionaries, as, as, as people who take the light of Jesus to all the world, um, that's when the glory of God shines through. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you are strengthened with his power through the Spirit. And, and we begin to look and go, all right, the whole point of the Spirit is that we might be missionaries. When you, when you, do, when you look at what the Spirit's work was, and I'm just going to look at just a handful of verses, but a handful of verses, John chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit, right? I'm sending you, receive the Spirit. Luke 24, you are my witnesses and I am sending you um, the, the promise of the Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with your power from on high. What is that? That is the Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You go to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, and they be, all begin to speak in other languages, and, and, and 3,000 people get saved. And it wasn't just the apostles speaking. They all spoke. The Spirit is given that the gospel mission might go forward. And so even when we look at, at Matthew chapter 28, in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, and he's basically like, giving us this, this messianic statement, like, I'm the king, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and we think, in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit, and we jump ahead. We don't think, he says, baptizing them in the name. Like, why baptizing them in the name? What, is, what does it mean to baptize them in the name? It's, it's the, the idea that name shows identity right? And so as we've been going through, it's not an accident that we have said that the name of the Father defines our identity as children and his family, that the name of the Son defines us as servants because he is our King, that the name of the Spirit defines us as missionaries because he is on mission and we are on mission together. And so, so he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And th this idea of the name, it's like you look at names in, in Scripture, I mean, Adam from the ground, Eve, mother of all, Peter, rock, right? All these names define identity. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so the, the Spirit, when we look, the Spirit is given that we might be uh, people who live on mission. And so um, we've talked about the indicative, right? So we come to the back of the book. We've been jumping to the back of the book each week in Ephesians, going, all right, Ephesians chapter five. This is where the imperative comes. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the, what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so you go, all right, so this is what mission looks like played out in, in real life. And he addresses some things that you think, these are pretty mundane how does a command not to be drunk have anything to do with mission? And his expectation is, you're going to be eating and drinking with people. Like, you have to eat three times a day. You're going to be having people into your home. You're going to be eating and drinking with them. So be models as you eat and drink of what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. You, he, he goes on and, and talks about in everything we're giving thanks. That is, in our work, we're, we're saying, like, we're inviting people in to see our thankful heart and to see the joy that we have in vocation. In our rest, in our recreation, we are, are saying, look, come be part of the rest that we are enjoying. God modeled rest for us, and we're going to model it for you who are overworked. In our celebration, um, as, as often as possible, we want to be with people when they're celebrating. When you look at the Gospels, you look at Jesus showing up at parties, right? The, the first thing we see in his, in his ministry is Jesus at a party. And the last thing we see is Jesus at a party, right? At Cana, he shows up and what's he do? He brings the better wine because they ran out. And you come to the last party, he's at the table with the disciples and what's he bring? He brings a towel to serve them. Like when, when we think about what we do to celebrate with people. Now in our church, we have a number of people that have been through um, uh, like recovery. And, and so maybe alcohol is not the way to show up and, and go like, I'm, but the principle of bring, bringing the better wine, like for us, our family, we, we did Halloween this, this year and we, you know, like lit the, the garage up red and we handed out full-size candy bars and people would walk up and, and they're like, wow, full-size candy bar. And some people from like, we remember you from last year. You're the full-size candy bar people. What are we doing? Like we're saying, we love your kids. And, we, and we're like, yeah, of course we do because we love your kids and we are so glad you're part of our neighborhood. And you know, like we use that as an opportunity to, to say, yeah, we're going to bring the better stuff, right? Um, and and we're, kids are going to remember like, oh, those are the better stuff people, right? <laughs> That's what Christians should be. Christians should be the better stuff people. Like you, you come and you feel welcome and you feel cared for. And you, like it's, that's what hospitality is. Like anybody who aspires to be an elder, for instance, the Bible says like an elder is someone who like one of the qualifications is they are hospitable. They just are lavish in the way that they love people when they come into their home. Like if you're not doing that and you want to be an elder, you need to start doing that. That's, that needs to be part of it, but it should be part of what all of us do. We, we bring the better stuff. We bring a towel. Jesus shows up and he's going to start washing his disciples' feet, right? Peter's like, no, Lord, you can't do this. And Jesus was modeling for us what all of us should be doing. We show up and we're ready to serve. That We should be ready to celebrate with people in, in, the, in all the things that they're doing in life. We should be looking for ways to bless. Like every, almost every week, we... Um, we say to each other as, as we're leaving, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the next verse is, so shall they put my name upon these people. Blessing to be, like we are blessed 
to be a blessing. Abraham was blessed and he said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so all of Abraham's blessings in Christ Jesus are ours. And the responsibility of being blessed to be a blessing is ours. So God gives us more than we need. So how do we use it to help those that are in need? How do we use the stuff we have together to begin to be a blessing to people? And so when you think about mission and you think about reaching the lost, like it's not about trying to get people in a room to convince them. It's, it's about us trying to figure out how do I bless them? Because as I bless them, God's name is being put on them. And yes, we're going to have opportunity as we sit and we eat to listen and hear people's story. And, and it's amazing how their story will line up with God's story, like creation and fall and redemption and restoration. They, they're like, yeah, I was this. Um, and then things fell apart. And now I'm looking for, and you go, oh, let me help you out with the rest. This is what redemption looks like. This is what restoration. As we listen, we begin to hear what they have to say. As we share life with them, they begin to see it in us. Like so much of mission is just being with people, being together with people, them seeing life. Like, I don't know how many times I've had guys that have said, um, like, hey, I know you believe different than me or whatever. And maybe there's something about that that makes things different, but you have something I want, right? And, and they're not willing to admit like, oh, it's this Jesus thing because the Jesus thing comes with responsibilities. But, but they're like, there's something and, and I'd like to have it, but I'm not sure what it is. And I'm like, well, let me tell you. Well, you told me that before. I'm just not convinced that's the thing. Maybe there's something else. And it's like, so, so as we bump up against people, as we're living life with them, as we're eating with them, working with them, resting with them, celebrating with them, blessing, that's how mission goes forward. Mission is not about us going, like, I have four spiritual laws. I have a presentation I'm going to give you. I'm going to, like, um, A, B, C, admit, believe, and call. Like, I, like that's, that's part, a little tiny piece of this much broader thing that we do. And so when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, make the most of the time because the days are evil, and then he goes on, it's not like, here's your apologetic outline of how to, like, share the gospel. It's here's what your life looks like that shares the gospel. As you're eating and drinking, don't get drunk. As you're doing everything in life, give thanks and, and, and sing and make music and, and, and have this joyful heart. Um, yield to each other out of reverence for Christ. This is what it looks like to live the life of the gospel. This is what it looks like for your life to be on mission is, is it comes out of your life and then it opens up opportunities for it to come out of your lips. This, this, this is our life on mission, and it happens because the Spirit is in us. God has given us a spirit that we might be missionaries. And so when we say we are a family of missionary servants called to worship God and walk in, and learn to walk in His ways, this is what it means. Father, thanks so much for Ephesians. We, we are um, pulling so much out of this and that um, you are teaching us who you are and who we are in you. Lord, I ask that as we are figuring out how to do mission together, that we will look for opportunities to be in each other's homes, to invite in each other's neighbors, to invite in each other's coworkers, to celebrate with them, to eat with them, to share life with them. Lord, we, we want it to, to flow out of what we do naturally. And so we ask that you will make that just part of the natural rhythms of our lives together, that we will be together and that we will share life with each other and other people will want, want to be part of what it is that, we, that you are doing in and through us. Lord, thank you for the good news that the gospel redeems all of life, that the gospel 
not only cancels out our sin before God, but the gospel offers us life that is truly life. And it offers us reconciliation both to God and to his people. And so, Lord, I ask that you will make us uh, people who are not just reconciled, but people who are reconcilers, that we will have a ministry of reconciliation that is going beyond our comfort zone so that we are constantly thinking, who should be at my table? Who are the people that, that aren't at my table that I'm missing out on? Who is it that you want me to connect with and reach out? Lord, make us a, a gospel-filled, spirit-filled people that pursue you in everything. And we ask this in Jesus' name.